Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. This is Jefferson Smith sitting in for Tom. As you probably already have heard or may already have heard, the state of Alabama has voted now for the most extreme anti-abortion law in the nation. There is no exception in this law for rape or incest or death of the mother or life of the mother. There are two intentions of this law. One is its stated intent. The second is not only its impact on Alabama, but the impact it could have on the United States of America. During this portion, we're going to talk about the reminder of why it mattered so very much that a Supreme Court seat was stolen. We're going to connect this to what's happening in the media. I want us to remember the essential arguments about why a woman's right to choose was so important in the first instance, why Roe versus Wade was so important in the first instance. I worry that this is a generation that knew not Joseph. I worry that we have forgotten a critical debate in the country and some of the most important elements of that debate, including an era of back alley abortions, significant risks to health and safety for women, subjugation of women, if we actually want full agency and full power for all human beings in our country, how this relates to that. And I worry that if we take for granted some of those arguments, if we think that all the threats, it's something that they talk about only on talk radio, it's not really going to happen in governance. There's always, we've had Roe versus Wade for so many decades now. It's going to stick. Well, Days after, days after Justice Breyer, days after Justice Brennan, days after we had liberal justices say their concerns, excuse me, Justice Stevens, say their concerns about raising the alarm and raising the alarm about the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I will say, I think, I thought. I was not as scared about the elimination of Roe versus Wade as many with whom I share politically even strategic beliefs because I thought that it might be a little bit like Miranda warnings. Miranda warnings not set forth in the Constitution. Miranda warnings carried forward from British common law. Miranda warnings got to the Supreme Court. Lots of people thought, ah, this might be when Miranda warnings go away. No longer required. No longer a clear prophylactic for statements that are damaging to defendants when that statement is by the defendant themselves. No longer needed to be given to those defendants. Then it got to the Rehnquist Court, and the Rehnquist Court didn't get rid of Miranda warnings. And upon reflection, that didn't surprise me. If you see the Rehnquist Court, if you see the modern rise of the Federalist Society Court, not merely and not primarily and not accurately, as a group of people just with a different set of jurisprudential theoretics, but instead understand it as part of a political movement, 
a set of political operatives who are put in lifetime appointment chairs. Then you realize, well, getting rid of Miranda warnings, you'd be getting rid of one of the few cases that the vast majority of Americans can say by name. I don't know the poll numbers on recognition of Jay Leno did his on-the-street interviews trying to make people look stupid years ago. How many people would have recognized Brown versus Board of Education? A lot of people. But Miranda warnings, anybody who's watched CSI, anybody who's watched Law and Order, everybody knows Miranda warnings. And I think that they kept Miranda warnings because if they'd gotten rid of it, it would be just so obvious that the court had moved in a direction that was coming after people's individual liberties, trying to protect corporate power, trying to protect concentration of wealth, trying to protect unfettered ability of capital to make whatever choice it chooses. I'm not calling that liberty. I'm not calling that freedom. I think that is a derogation of that word. I think that is a bastardization of that word. I am saying corporate power, the power of unfettered capital, and going after individual liberties. And so they kept Miranda warnings. And I thought, well, maybe with Roe versus Wade, it'll be similar. They won't topple Roe versus Wade. They'll keep using it as an issue to elect candidates like Donald Trump, to motivate voters who it isn't in their financial interest to have an economic policy that focuses on concentrating wealth at the very upper echelon, trying to make sure that they can maintain their right-wing church coalition for a candidate like Donald Trump, whose personal conduct and personal views don't seem, shall we say, fully in step from the lessons we might hear in a Sunday morning sermon, that maybe they'll keep Roe versus Wade. Well, I think that Alabama might know stuff that I don't. Because Alabama has passed a law that is patently unconstitutional, that is patently, absurdly, an undue burden on a woman's right to privacy, on a woman's right to choose, on a woman's essential liberties, as defined by current Supreme Court precedent. The only way you pass that law, and by the way, if you take an oath when you are sworn into office to uphold the Constitution, unless you think the Supreme Court precedent is not the manifestation of the Constitution, you just violated your own oath Members of the legislature in Alabama just violated their own oaths by passing this law. It only makes sense through a lens of thinking that the stealing of the Merrick Garland Supreme Court seat, that the appointment of the new Supreme Court justice to create a five-seat right-wing majority in the Supreme Court, that to quote the former presidential candidate, former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, we will find out if that appointment was worth it. You'd only do that if you thought you had a chance, thought you had a chance, maybe more than that, to in fact make your law, rather than the current Supreme Court precedent, the law of the land. I want to talk about the Alabama law. I want to talk about why it's absurd. I want to talk about some of the fundamental arguments that we should... We should remember from 35 years ago. We should remember from 45 years ago. Was making the case that this is, yes, about the subjugation of women in Alabama, but it is also about something broader than that, that anybody voting on this would eat, would believe one of two things. Anybody voting in favor, any state legislator voting in favor of this law in Alabama would be feeling one of two things, either that it was okay to violate the Constitution, or that they wanted to change the interpretation of the Constitution. And they wanted to make Roe versus Wade no longer the law of the land. And lest that seem not so obvious, or lest that seem like I am reaching a bit or making a leap of analysis, let's just listen to State Representative Terry Collins, Republican, who said after the vote, this bill is about challenging Roe versus Wade. I will say it again. This bill is about challenging Roe versus Wade, end quote. 
this is going to help define. And the timing of this, the timing of this, I think is very much on purpose. And it's not only the timing in the rearview mirror after the current composition of the Supreme Court was determined. It is not only a recognition that with the confirmation of not only previously confirmed Chief Justice John Roberts, not only with the older Clarence Thomas, not only with the previously confirmed Samuel Alito, now also with Brett Kavanaugh, now also with Neil Gorsuch, now also with that stolen Supreme Court seat, that there is a chance to overturn it. Not only in the rearview mirror, but also through the front glass, also through the windshield, also ahead is the election. Remember, see, they got a problem. The right wing has had a problem for a while, and that is somehow having an argument for freedom and calling the unfettered control of capital freedom. That is an odd thing. I am surprised that linguists and media and human beings and people with conscience allowed our language to get away with that. But let's put that on pause for a moment. Somehow to make that the clarion call and by that not include the fundamental freedom for slightly more than half of the population of our country, not including essential freedoms for women. But also, they have this other challenge that they have elected a guy who was willing to sign their tax breaks, who was willing to be more extreme in his language than other candidates so as to really keep a hold of the right-wing Fox News and right-wing radio listener base. And do that somehow by sticking with or getting the right-wing Christians to stick with him. Despite his personal conduct, personal beliefs, and lack of churchiness, and the way they do that is Roe versus Wade. We'll be back to talk about it more. I'm Jeff Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Show. So we are talking about Alabama. We are talking about a woman's right to choose. Something we can now so clearly not take for granted. Something that so clearly is not merely a line that a candidate uses to build support. I want to talk about it in the context of the upcoming presidential elections. But right now we have people patiently waiting. I want to hear from you. Deborah in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on AM 1350. Deborah, thanks so much for calling. My family's originally from Alabama, and I remember when abortion became legal in Mississippi. I was living in Mississippi at the time. I was a high school dropout single mother whose husband walked out on her, and I did have an abortion because I had a child already, and I didn't know if I could take care of him without an education or job skills. Eventually, I did get my GED, and at 50, got my Ph.D., but I feel this law in Alabama is against poor people and minorities because a rich person will always fly somewhere and get an abortion. It's not going to affect them. It will only affect poor people, and they will have higher problems with poverty, and we're not talking about this. The Republican fascist regime has been attacking brown, black, minorities, and poor people for years, and I really believe they want the oligarchs and a caste system of poverty. Deborah, thank you so much, and thank you so much for putting this through a lens of equality, equity, and fairness. Yes, for women, but also for people of color and also for people experiencing poverty. That any way I would agree would be merely essentially restating what you said. But I will restate it for emphasis and appreciation that a poor person doesn't have as easy a chance to take a plane and hop over somewhere to go get that, doesn't have the network of financial resources to make that as easy. Heck, in the olden days, women could fly to another country, but only rich women could afford to fly to another country. Thank you for helping us see it in that lens, and thanks so much for your call and your candor. Thank you. Craig from El Granada, California. Go ahead. 
I was a law clerk for a retired federal judge. I have a background, 40-year background, undefeated litigator, and I've also written law that passed unanimously. And when I look at Roe v. Wade, I also grew up in an all-girl family, and I was also adopted, so I want to say for the record, being an adopted person, you come predisposed to be pro-life, but also growing up in an all-girl family, you come predisposed to realizing every person in America, as far as I know, and I've worked at the Supreme Court level, as far as I know, every person in America has a right to control their destiny and their body. And when we take that right away, we are in fundamental violation of many things in the Constitution. We try to make logical choices and say, well, an embryo has a heartbeat or whatever, and so doesn't this life form also have a choice? And we can also go into the conflicts made when someone says, I'm a family values person. And when we look at the Republicans, many laws that are being passed, the way people are living today, and you say, well, if you're a family value person, why aren't we feeding kids in school? Why aren't we taking care of pregnant women who are really alive and that their lives matter? And so we can go into a long debate about who is right here. And I suggest the Constitution provides ample framework for us to say that every person in America, especially citizens and free men and women, have a right to control their bodies. And I think an amendment to the Constitution is the first step to enshrining Roe v. Wade so that women never have to worry about this again. And the second thing, a presidential candidate, and I'm not going to get into all those policies, but I looked at this and I said on day one, the first thing the federal government could do, any progressive federal government, is say, women, if you're in a state that has these sort of laws and problems, we have a national Medicare system. Yeah, as we all have heard, we call it Medicare for all. I call it free universal health care. No copay, no problems. And if you're a woman in a state like this, I think the federal government should step up to the plate and say, you go down to your local airline, you show them your maternity slip that says, you know, your OBGYN says you're pregnant. And you go there and you get a first class ticket, federal government paid to a state that doesn't have a problem with it. You go and have the counseling that every woman, I think, should have before that, whether it's with a physician and say, are you sure you want to do this? You don't want to look at adoption, you know, but you have a right. And you go through that counseling. And if you want to go see some cleric or some priest, that's on you while you're there in that city. You'll maybe take 24 hours to think about it. Come back the next day. And if you say, no, I want to go forward with this, this child would be negatively impacted. I'm concerned about overpopulation. I'm concerned that I'm a, a teenager, whatever, whatever the reason is. I'm a woman, I have control over my body. Then the federal government pays for it in the other state. You fly back home first class, federal government pays for all those hotel bills for women. And I think we owe that to the women who we all have to remember. This country and adopted kids and all of the great technology we have, everything we have would not exist if it wasn't for the women, the mothers in our life. We've got to take care of them as equal citizens that have every right to control their bodies. That's my personal position on all of this. Craig, thank you so much. And roughly speaking, my personal position, too, that the fact that a nearly entirely white male crew of state legislators would think that they are in the best position to evaluate the balancing of the interests and the fundamental freedoms and what equity, equality, fairness, freedom, morality should mean with the most essential functions and choices that women have to make is absurd, is itself deeply misogynist. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by Robin Marty. It's titled Handbook for a Post-Row, as in Roe v. Wade, for a Post-Row America. And the cut line on the front says, the future without Roe is coming straight at us. This is the roadmap you need for the tough times ahead. This is from chapter seven, page 101 titled Knowing Your Comfort Zone, Why Civil Disobedience? Access to abortion and birth control isn't just a health care issue or an economic issue, it's also a civil rights issue. And like every civil rights battle, gains are made through acts of civil disobedience or working outside the legal framework. Married people officially gained the right to access birth control only after Estelle Griswold, the executive director of the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut, opened a clinic and began offering contraception in direct opposition to the 1960s state law forbidding it. That right was extended to single people in 1972 after Bill Baird was arrested in 1967 for purposely flaunting the Massachusetts law and publicly providing contraceptives to an unmarried woman during a college lecture. 
The clergy consultation service on abortion spent much of the 1960s and early 70s prior to the Roe decision, assisting pregnant people in finding safe abortions either from legal or illegal providers throughout the country and across the borders. And there were groups like Jane's Collective that provided the service themselves, even at the risk of their own arrest. Today, people are highlighting a number of issues through acts of civil disobedience. North Carolina had weekly mass arrests at their state capitol during Moral Mondays protests, while the Black Lives Matter movement physically closed highways with their bodies. And of course, when Brett Kavanaugh was appointed to the Supreme Court, hundreds of activists were arrested, some multiple times, for interrupting his hearings, protesting in the Hart Building, when it became clear the Senate Judiciary was not going to investigate claims of past sexual assault. Some protesters even blocked the stairs prior to Kavanaugh's swearing-in ceremony. As our society recedes further into racism, sexism, xenophobia, and classism, opposing the power structure through nonviolent means grows more imperative. Aaron Matson, the co-founder of the reproductive rights group Repro Action and Teen Vogue, wrote, If Roe is overturned or gutted, it is certain that some states will propose and enact some abortion bans, new abortion bans. Again, nonviolent civil disobedience should remain on the table, this time targeting state and municipal level lawmakers. We must remember that while in several contexts, abortion rights supporters lack immediate political power, in spite of the fact that nearly 7 in 10 Americans do not want to see Roe overturned, we always retain the power of using our bodies to stop or slow the machinery of state repression, end of quote. Matson adds, ultimately, it's up to activists to decide. Are we willing to break convention if lobbying fails? Are we willing to strategically expose ourselves to the risks of arrest? And if we are not, are we willing to look into the eyes of the future generations who will be incarcerated for abortions, miscarriages, and pregnancy complications? End of quote. ReproAction is a growing network of state-based activists that conducts political events, teach-ins, and other direct actions to increase access to abortion and birth control services. They currently have national campaigns as well as individual campaigns in D.C., Virginia, Missouri, Arkansas, and Wisconsin. You can join up with or financially support ReproAction to increase their national and local reach. Subchapter title, Is Civil Disobedience Right for Me? What are you willing to do to make sure that you, the people you know, or even total strangers, have access to contraception and abortion care, especially once more abortion options become illegal? Are you willing to be arrested if you participate in direct action or nonviolent protest? Is helping someone obtain abortion pills worth a potential prison sentence? Would you drive a teen to another state to get an abortion if that drive makes you an abortion facilitator and thus a federal criminal? You may believe you're willing to risk everything to help someone get an abortion, and that may well be what is needed in some cases in a post-Roe America. But make sure that you've really thought out all the consequences of such a radical approach. These are the questions you should be asking yourself now before new laws are put into place. One small silver lining of the Trump era is the way it has energized so many people to actively resist the political agenda. There are more activists, donors, candidates, and protesters than there have been in decades. And that means lots of people who can work together and step in when and where people are needed. But in certain geographic areas, it is and will continue to be harder to find those with the ability and privilege to do resistance work. For example, with the Trump administration's increasing militarization of ICE and border security, checkpoints into and out of America will be more scrutinized than ever before. With a population that in many cases is literally trapped in places like the Rio Grande Valley or Las Cruces, where undocumented people can neither leave the country for services nor go further into the U.S. for care, the need for additional action and people who have the willingness and ability to act may be greater than in New York City or the Bay Area. Maybe you have a very specific skill set. You might be medically trained, have a legal background, or maybe you've done counseling or social work, or you're a member of the clergy. These are people who will add a lot of value to the movement, especially if it turns out civil disobedience is the right way to proceed. Ask yourself if you're the only person who can do the thing you're considering doing, or if there's a number of people like you who are planning to step up. Then ask yourself what sort of risk you may be running and how those factors balance out. It's almost impossible to be a solitary activist these days, but there are spaces where you can manage. Letter writing campaigns, social media campaigns, information distribution, and fundraising can all be accomplished in a fairly solitary environment. Handbook for a post-Row America. Let's be clear about something. Let us be crystal clear about at least something. The fact that the Alabama law 
does not have an exception for rape or incest. In fact, the abortion law does not allow for a woman from having an abortion, even in a case of incest. Let us be clear what that means. Incest in the United States does not mean Cersei and Jamie Lannister. It does not mean some troubling but nonetheless romanticized thing on television. It doesn't mean Jonah from Veep. It doesn't mean some video on the dark web or even on the not-so-dark web. What it means in real life is trigger warnings on this whole darn thing. This is a painful topic for a lot of people. By talking about it plainly, I don't mean to cause additional harm. And if you need to listen to something else, we're talking about this tough stuff, I totally get it. Most welcome you to stick with us. We will try to treat the topics with some sensitivity, but they will be tough subjects and we will deal with the tough subjects. That we're talking about in the United States of America, we're talking about incest, is we're essentially talking about child rape. We're talking about a 12-year-old girl who is made forcibly to have sex by a family member, by a brother, uncle, cousin maybe, and requiring that girl, that woman, that girl, young woman if you prefer, but I think they're 12, that's a girl, saying there will be penalty for you or your doctor, criminal penalty for you or your doctor, if you don't take that pregnancy to term. Let's be clear about that. This is insidious. This is immoral. This is not merely a political issue. This is a deeply important moral issue, and it is offensive. And it should offend every American. Let's take Wendy's call. Wendy, you're on from East Rockaway. Thanks for calling. I am absolutely sick about this. All I can think of is that it amounts to forced motherhood. It's supposed to be such a wonderful and beautiful thing, and forcing someone to do it makes it very difficult for a woman to find joy in it and be able to do it the way that she wants to. I'm a mother myself. I have a one-year-old, I'm 39. I waited till this age so that I would be able to provide a good life for him, what I deemed to be, you know, a good life. You know, I waited to develop my career and make enough money so that I could buy a house with my husband and have all of the things that we wanted to in order to, you know, provide a good home for a baby. And we did have an abortion back in the day. We did. Because it was not the right time. If we had been forced to go through with it at that point, I don't know how happy we would be. I mean, yes, every child is wonderful. We should celebrate every life, all of that business. But I really am so glad that I was able to wait. And it makes me so sad and hurt and angry that there are other women out there who would have to essentially stop their lives because someone else is making the decision for them. Yeah, because some politicians in Alabama want to build power, build power on the backs of women in their state and want to force the Supreme Court to make a decision about changing the interpretation of the Constitution to force that same choice in legislature across the country. And they also just can't handle the fact that there are so many women, I mean, who are excelling and doing so. And I believe that Roe v. Wade is one of the things that actually made that possible. The reason why you have more women in the workplace, the women who, why, reason why you have more women who are successful beyond the dreams of our grandmothers, for goodness sake. I mean, abortion rights is what gave us the ability to say, okay, no, wait a second here. We're going to be able to plan our lives out so that we can have our cake and eat it too, have the career and then have the family if we choose to. Yeah, Wendy, this was the thing that I was too insensitive to as a younger person. I knew sort of what my politics were. I still, you know, I wouldn't have disagreed with anything you said, but it wasn't until, it really wasn't until, you know, probably my relation with my own wife and when it dawned on me a little more deeply, where I felt it a little bit more passionately. And even the depth of that feeling 
happening even more recently, that to just parrot what you said, that we can't have fundamental equality if we don't address this issue. If, we, if women do not have rights over their own bodies and we can't understand the abortion debate if we don't understand it through a lens of feminism, through a lens of equality, through a lens of bending the artificial of justice, and through a lens of exactly what you were saying was a chance for women to have full agency, full control, not only of that choice, but generally being able to shape their own lives. Uh, that we have to make sure women are not merely concubines of the state and that dudes aren't making critical and yeah. all important decisions. I couldn't agree with you more, and, and, and I if, so appreciate you calling. Please, please go ahead. The fact that there's anyone out there making it sound as though the choice and actually going through with an abortion is some sort of light decision is, I think, the thing that really makes me the angriest. Yeah. It's something that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of reflection. How hard was um, it for you? Oh, my God. It was, it, was, it was hard, but we both knew that it was the right thing to do. I mean, I think that we were both kind of at the coming to the heights of our careers and realized, like, no, if we want to actually have a family, we need to do this the right way. And that was a very difficult decision. We couldn't tell anybody. I mean, only very, very few friends could we even mention it to. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of support there because of it. But as we got older, or as I got older anyway, you know, I opened up to a few more people and I started to see you know, just how many people around me went through the same thing and how there are so many of us who decided to wait till we were in our mid to late 30s and some of us who were even deciding to wait a little bit longer. You know, it's such a taboo thing. It's such a scary thing. It's a hard thing to talk about. But, you know, maybe the only thing that may come of this that's positive is the fact that it'll get people talking. I'm calling a radio show, for goodness sake, and saying, you know, very, very personal things that I can't even tell my parents, you know, because it is so important. And I think that maybe if we talked about it a little bit more, it would be easier for women to stand up for themselves and for the men around them to stand up as well. And for people to sort of be willing to have courage that they might otherwise lack because they thought the courage yes. previously wasn't yes. as necessary. Yes, yes, it's hard. But you know what? Thank goodness there's enough men out there as well who are truly understanding of this and supportive of the sisters and cousins and wives and <laughs> girlfriends around them because, you know, it takes women have to support each other, but men have to support the women as well. If you had a chance to talk with a member of the Alabama legislature and recognize that there are other legislators in other states who would jump at the chance to vote in the same way that Alabama legislators did. I live on the West Coast. I still know that former colleagues of mine in the legislature, there are more than a half a dozen who would almost certainly jump at the chance to vote alongside. It's not only an Alabama problem, but if you had a chance to sit down with one of these Alabama legislators, given your own experience, Wendy, what, what would you want them to hear? What would, you, what would you want them to understand that you think they might not understand? I, I would want them to understand that they were elected to office to represent their constituents, not their own personal religious beliefs. If you believe that something was written down in a book by a deity 3,000 years ago, that's wonderful for you. But you represent many, many people. And the majority of the people in this country believe that abortion rights are women's rights and health rights. It goes beyond just the physical health. It goes to mental health. It goes to so many aspects. And any lawmaker who thinks that, <laughs> that they can impose their own views on this country is a reason for them not to hold the office, and they should be voted out. If they really listen to what the majority of the country wants, that's really what they should be doing as lawmakers. Wendy, thank you so much for being willing to call. You said that it was not only a challenging thing to do, but a challenging thing to talk about, and appreciate you so much for being willing and, to address that challenge. And if we challenge. can just say, and I will say it again, it amounts to forced motherhood. Yeah. It should not be forced. You should do it by choice. Wendy, thank you so much. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. 
used to think new year, new me. Yeah, right. More like new year, new wrinkles. With every passing year, we all look older. But all that has changed now thanks to this magic in a bottle Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's like you turned back the clock instead of ringing in another new year. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. All you have to do is apply this powerful serum to problem areas and within 10 minutes, voila, a new you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox involved. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 knowing Plexiderm is going to give you smooth, younger looking skin in minutes. And the best part is it goes on clear so nobody even knows you're using it. Leave your under eye bags and wrinkles in 2019 with Plexiderm. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, -N, for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code Hartman. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code Hartman at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com, code Hartman. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. People have been waiting patiently. Let's go to Trish, who wins the most patient listener award from Kent, Washington. Mm -hmm. Hello, Trish. Hi, Jeff. I Hello. wanted to talk about abortion because my grandmother died from an illegal abortion. Oh, dear. She left six children behind. It was during the Depression. Oh, dear. My mother was 10. She had twins that were less than a year old. They ended up having to live with an aunt and an uncle. The whole dynamics of the family was changed. You know, I never grew up with a grandmother. And then their father died young, too. So they were really in a bad situation. And I feel that abortion is something that's done when you're in a desperate state. Yeah. So women are not going to stop having abortions. What's going to happen is they're going to die again. Yeah. And that's really horrible for the whole family. And I feel that if these Republican lawmakers really want to stop abortion, they need to make birth control more accessible. They need to give a lot of money to Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood will help you get on contraceptives. They don't tell you, oh, don't worry, just come back when you need an abortion. I mean, that's crazy. So... The conservatives that say they really just don't want children to die, I think they're just trying to control women. Yeah. No, on Mondays and Thursdays on our home station at X-Ray, my dad and I do a show on Mondays and Thursday mornings called News with My Dad. It's called that because I talk about the news with my dad. And one of the lines that he talks about uh, is uh, when Planned Parenthood comes up, he says, people need to understand that what Planned Parenthood is about is wanted babies, is wanted children. And that usually has come up in the context of trying to defund Planned Parenthood and recognizing that when there's access to contraceptives, when there's access to family planning, abortions go down. And your point, Trish, is so important. I am also interested, though, and really appreciate the, your willingness to share your family's story. It does, and we've tried to been prioritizing calls from people with personal stories to share and from women callers whose perspectives matter so much vastly more, certainly, than my own, because I think you can inspire other people to share their stories, because I think there's so many people that has touched personally that they have felt maybe shame and not to share. And, and stories like your family are so important. Are you willing to talk about it a little bit more? I don't want to pressure you. If you don't want to, it's totally up to you. No, I'd be happy to. So you say your grandmother during the Depression, what, she already had six kids, and the seventh kid, they said, we shouldn't do this anymore, or at least not right now? Yes. Well, yeah, because the youngest were 10-month-old twins, and they had a trouble feeding everybody in the family as it was because it was during the Depression. And so abortion was illegal, but that didn't stop her from seeking an abortion. Tell us, to exactly. you're comfortable, tell us about that, not just that choice, but how she went to access an abortion. Well, um, what I've been told is that an aunt gave her the abortion. So how it was done, where, I don't know. Yeah. But I know that uh, my mother and the rest of the family was all called into her bedroom to say goodbye to her. And she had blood coming out of everywhere. She died of sepsis. So it was very, it was heartbreaking. So six kids, 
including 10-month-old twins who are already having a hard time mm -hmm. getting fed, getting taken care of in the middle of the Great Depression. You have six kids who don't have a mom anymore because, right. because of a law that said she couldn't get it done healthy. That's the story of your family. Yes. I'm so sorry. Yes. I'm so and, sorry. You know, uh, yeah, it was, if you hear my, my mom and my uncles talk about, and my aunt, I have one aunt, how they grew up in their childhood, it's just heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because it didn't get any easier. No, it would have gotten a lot harder. Right? Yes, because because now, what it, what it, do you know in the family lore? Do you know what they did for child care after that? What they, like, was an aunt available then to help? And what did the, what did the kids do? I mean, 10 months old, well, this, your, your grandmother was still probably breastfeeding. Yes. Well, I know that my mother wanted to, she was 10. She had an older brother, 12, and the rest were all younger. The only other girl was one of the twins. And she wanted to quit school to stay home and take care of the twins. Well, her father said no. And I think they try, he tried to hire help, but it didn't last long. I'm not sure why, if it was money or whatever. But an aunt and uncle who were never able to have children took the twins and raised them. Trish, so, your, your story your story matters. I thank you so much for sharing it. I, I think we take I think we take for granted it's been treated as like I don't know some political football is this mm -hmm. just some issue and, and, and we forget the lives of people that it impacts and thank you so much for putting it in higher relief. Oh you're welcome. Thanks for having me. We'll be back. This is Tom Shawncha. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Elizabeth from West Hollywood, California. Hello, Elizabeth. Hi. I work in the child support court. Well, I worked in family law court for many years, and then I worked occasionally in the child support court. And the thing that they don't even mention about this whole abortion issue is who's going to pay for this child? And I thought that if they're going to have a law that a woman can't have an abortion, there should be an addendum to include that the man has to pay child support from the beginning. Mm. It's appalling what some of these men who have many children all over the place and experience that issue when I worked at the child support court, where a man... He has a girlfriend here, and he's got three children with her, and had another couple of liaisons where he's had other children. I can't afford to support any of them. Yeah. And I don't know, I always thought the resolution is if you don't pay your child support, you should have a mandatory vasectomy, you know. Elizabeth, appreciate the call. Dot from Upland, California, you're on the air. Thanks for sharing your story. Hi. I am calling on the opposite side of abortion. Sure. I was a child born because abortion was not legal, one of six children. I grew up with zero self-worth, not knowing that physical abuse was not love. So countless marriages, trying to find love that was ended up in abuse. I counted the days growing up until I was 18. I saved every penny I could get my hands on just to escape. I wouldn't wish my life on anyone. I saw the disparity in Christmas gifts. We were always told to make lists. Every brother and sister got what they wanted on their list except for me. My clothes were bought at the secondhand store. All the others received new clothes. And you lived the life of an unwanted child. Exactly. It is not something that any child should be forced to live I'm through. so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, we just want to... I feel sorry. I'm not, I'm not calling for sympathy. No, I recognize it, but I, I appreciate I it call, nonetheless. I just want people to know that this is not what children should be growing up with. It's just not. And I, I don't regret not being with my mother when she died, even though she would died in the same city I lived in. I would not go to the hospital. Hmm. And so for you, what you want to make sure is that we have a, we have a, what, a set of rules that encourages more wanted children. Is that where you end up landing? I think that 
women should be able to decide whether they want children or not. And yeah. and they shouldn't be tortured just because they're unwanted. Yeah. That's what this system is going to set up. And I that, mean, look it, at how yeah. many children are born and put up for adoption and end up homeless because they turn 18 and these foster care parents only cared about their money. They didn't care about their education. Yeah. This is just going to create more homeless people. Well, Dot, I appreciate you. I appreciate you so much sharing your story. Okay, thank you very much. Sorry. No, why sorry? No, you don't have to even hang sorry up. Why, 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 why sorry? You have absolutely nothing to apologize for. What are you talking about? The world should apologize for you, for you having to live a life and not feeling like you were loved and wanted and belonging. Like everybody owes you an apology. Like the one thing we should have, we should be working for a society where people feel like they belong. That should be like yes. the, the main gig. Like you are here, and because you're here, we're going to try to love you, and we're going to try to make sure your life doesn't suck. And when you pass somebody on the street, you're going to hope that they're loved too. And if somebody's lacking love in their own life, we're going to try to have a world where people are a little more loved rather than a little less. And that's the best chance we got. You got nothing to apologize for. What are you talking about? Thank you so much. We love you. Have a good day. Take Bye. care. This is Tom Armand Show. I'm Jeff. I'll pull it together. Howdy, everybody. This is Jeff. Thanks for being with us. You can tweet us at Tom Hartman. You can tweet me at Jefferson D. Smith. We are taking and hearing your stories and moved significantly by multiple of them. We're on with Free Speech TV. Richard from Calumet, Michigan. Go ahead. I was another one of those unwanted children. My dad and mom were very young when they had me, and my dad went off to Vietnam. And while he was off at Vietnam, my mom decided to shack up with somebody else and didn't want me and lied to get me committed. And I ended up growing up in the system, and the system has a way of torturing people beyond belief. The stories of experimental drugs, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, being locked in solitary confinement for weeks at a time, they're all true. And there's many, many places in Michigan, half of them don't exist. One of the very biggest places was Clinton Valley Center called Farallon was the youth program. Another one in Ann Arbor was CPH. And there was an adoption agency called Spalding for Children who would put kids in abusive homes and these people were at free reign to do whatever they wanted to kids and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of kids that I grew up with and I have no idea even how to contact some of them to pull us together to fight back and how parents can use their children to fight amongst each other it's just if a kid isn't wanted and a kid isn't needed, there's no reason to make anybody suffer. Just Richard, is that place, the place you mentioned, did you mention that place is closed now or is there one of the ones that's still Yeah, up? all the places I've existed, as far as I know, don't exist. I can't even find my childhood records. And I'll now tell you, it is, in- not, it is not a coincidence that housing facilities that were designed essentially for unwanted babies have gone away. In the wake of Roe versus Wade, we have had a much higher percentage of wanted babies, which means that facilities like that that end up abusing children are less likely to pop up or less likely to fester. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I don't know if somehow other people call into Tom Hartman's show and hear this. And if they're able to get, I'd love people to get a hold of me and get together because there's so many of us out there. Is there a resource? Is there an organization that tries to work with adults of people who are trying to recover from that experience? Is Not there any I website? I went to college. I couldn't read when I graduated high school and I uh. taught myself how to read and I went six years to college to become a counselor to help other kids to make it through Thank the you. system. 
and then they cut all our state cut all the programs and there's no health programs i'm disabled right now i got my neck broken in an auto accident and i can't even go to the social services office and get paperwork because our last governor completely wiped out the social services program yeah well richard i'm so sorry i appreciate it appreciate your call i appreciate that want to hear from Lorinda. Lorinda from Roosevelt, Utah. Hello, Lorinda. Hi, Jeff. I wanted to respond to the same thing with Dot and Richard that they did. I had the same experience like Dot. I was the sixth child, and my mother tried to give herself an abortion with the child she had before me. Mm. And when I came along, I was the ultimate insult. (laughs) And... uh, they would come in and beat me even in my crib if I cried. And the first words I remember hearing are them screaming at each other uh, as whose fault I was and cursing. And hmm. my nine-year-old sister used to sneak in and take me out of my crib and put me in bed with her to try to keep me quiet so that they wouldn't do that. And they caught me in bed with her one morning and they said, oh, you want her? Well, good. So they just moved my crib and everything out and said, you take care of her to my nine-year-old sister. Mm. And, I mean, they wouldn't even set a a plate at the table when I was older. They wouldn't even set a plate at the table when they served meals. My sister would feed me food off of her plate. I mean, I don't think I would have even survived, I'm sorry, without my sister. But I feel such empathy and love for Dot. Her story is so much like mine. I have struggled with depression and suicidal feelings my whole life, and I've been diagnosed with child onset PTSD. What got you through? What, you said your sister. What got you through? I don't think I would have survived without my sister. I mean, they just, when she was nine and I was not very old, they just abandoned me on her, and she said that, I was like a doll that she carried around and she took care of, and and she was my only advocate. The other children, they took my parents' view, you know, and they, I mean, I was sexually abused by some of them, and they took the view of my parents that I was just a nothing, that you could do anything you wanted to, and so thank God for my sister, I guess, but my whole life I've just felt like I shouldn't be here, you know, I just don't, you know. I don't even know what to say. They asked me to sit in because I'm supposed to have things to say. I don't know what to say. I know. I know you don't, but I was wanting to call in and give the perspective. I'm so glad you did. Yes. But then I heard Dot, you know, she got in ahead of me. And then I really wanted to express to Dot and to Richard, I have such love and empathy for you. You're not alone. You know, there are more of us, unfortunately. And to the to these men, these non-ovulators is what I call them, that have so much to say, like these men in Alabama, you know, walk in our shoes, you know, that's what I want to say. It's so kind of you to say that to Dot and to Richard. Richard I would love to uh, be able to talk to uh, like Dot and Richard if there was some way to do it. I know Richard mentioned he would love to talk to somebody. But I don't know how to do that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you email us, it, it's going to be up to them and it's going to be up to you. But if you email us and they email us, I will, of course, connect you together. And if you all tweet at me, I'm Jefferson D. Smith. But if Richard, if you want to connect with Lorinda, you can tweet at me or you can email the show. And don't know if we can make a connection, but maybe. At least we can make this connection on the air. And Lorinda, we appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take Lisa's call. Lisa from Niles, Ohio. Go ahead, Lisa. Hi, Jeff. Good to talk to you. Likewise. I'm calling about abortion. I was pregnant with my second son. At four months, they do an alpha-fetal protein test, and they found out he had Klinefelters, which is two X chromosomes and a Y. Mm -hmm. He would have been born a boy, and when he hit puberty, he would have developed female characteristics. They grow breasts. They develop into a woman. Mm Mm-hmm along with all the other cancers and medical abnormalities he would have had from birth. 80 to 90% of these children, the reason you've never heard of it is because they kill themselves. 
Yeah. 80 to 90 percent of these children kill themselves during mm. puberty. So what I chose was, I love God. I was raised Protestant, but my relationship with God is something personal that I believe in. At the time, I felt like, well, if his soul is going to be damned, I'd rather let it be mine. And that's the way I felt at the time, that if there was a life to be taken, I would do it. I wasn't going to let that be on his soul. But since then, I've um, settled that with God. This world wasn't meant for him. This world is too cruel, and I never wanted him to have to deal with that. And so I took it upon myself, but I've tried to be honest and open about my story when it, when it was right. And I'll tell you what, there were a lot of people that called me a murderer, selfish, that I just didn't want to take care of a disabled baby. I'm a nurse. I would have loved nothing more than to help a child that I love. That's not it at all. And I've come to find that people have their own agendas and their own guilt about things. I carried guilt around for years because of what other people told me, but I know I did right by my son. And I know my son is perfect, and he was always loved. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Does anybody think this stuff is easy? Anybody think that, that somebody like Lisa makes a choice without grappling so deeply with her own duties, with her own pain, with her own responsibilities, with her own faith? Nobody. This isn't easy. The question is whether it should be a crime, whether somebody like Lisa or her doctor should be thrown in jail. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Thank you so much for sharing. We'll get through it. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Certainly, for much of my lifetime, we have taken Roe versus Wade for granted. We just assumed, I was talking to Sean, who makes this show possible. And Sean is a woman. She has the name Sean, and she is a woman. And she said, my whole life, I knew abortion would be there. Thankfully, I never had to use it, but I always knew it would be there. I don't know if the next generation is going to be able to have that same confidence. We have taken it for granted. Part of that has been not sharing people's stories. Sharing stories like Trisha's of when an illegal abortion caused the death of her grandmother. Sharing stories like Richard's, like Lorinda's, like Dot's of being and feeling and living the life of unwanted children, how that sticks with you throughout your life. I'm glad you're alive. I want you to feel wanted. How do we make sure that we build a society that works so that people are able to live decent lives when they are born? There are places where people belong. Appreciated hearing from Dr. Lena Wen. But these personal stories, this is the stuff that I can't get in debating society. This is stuff that is not just, and this is the stuff I fear we forget. In part because they're painful stories to share, which is why we appreciate them so much. Uh, let's hear from Sam in Orange, Texas. Hello, Sam. Hey, Jefferson. Thank you, dear brother, for holding this tough conversation. My mother, when she was in high school in the 30s, was sound to me like date raped and became pregnant. And her older sisters and her little brother packed her up and took her to Mexico for what we always saw was a family vacation. But when one of my girlfriends got pregnant, she shared the story that what they had done was went to Mexico for an illegal abortion, which left her sterile. She got an infection and had to have a hysterectomy. And my sister and I were adopted, and I suppose my birth mother faced a tough decision and either couldn't or wouldn't terminate her pregnancy, and my sister and I were blessed to have a wonderful mother and father. Mom was a Sunday school teacher. Dad was a deacon in a Southern Baptist church. I became a surgical technician, and I have participated in terminations of pregnancy, and I fully support women's right to choose. Exactly. I want to bring on Valerie Chimayo? It's a Chimayo. Chimayo. Spanish accent. Go ahead. Okay, I was unwanted, and my childhood was the same as Dot's, but a worse 
hell of being singled out for at least sticky, disfiguring beatings into semi-unconsciousness, endlessly, deliberately underfed and enslaved. And in school, I went through an endless gauntlet of abuse for being silent and disfigured. I spent half my life homeless. But I responded differently than Dot. I became fierce, outspoken, and way more compassionate. And you all may think that I deserve to be aborted because my male parent didn't want me, but I know I am just as good because I saved at least five people's lives on uh, separate let, occasions. Let me stop just for a second. I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there's anybody from anybody we have talked to today, certainly nobody sitting in my chair, who is thinking that anybody should have been. The, the, I think the, the question we're wrestling with is whether somebody who makes that choice or whether the doctor who facilitates it should go to jail. Whether, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. What can you do to make abortion unnecessary? Yeah. Not illegal, but unnecessary. Yeah. How about the return to welfare as we knew it, but you could use the welfare money for daycare because when they're forcing these breastfeeding babies to go into daycare while their mothers have these minimum wage jobs, they're paying more for the daycare than they're paying for the welfare for, so the mother can breastfeed her baby. This is something that hasn't been brought up enough today, and that's probably my fault, and that is the, the intense, immense cost of child care right now. People have brought up foster care, people have brought up child support, but the monthly costs, it's so significant, it's so expensive, and to me, just immoral, and I appreciate your point, Valerie, it is immoral to impose forced pregnancies and not provide additional service so that kids can be taken care of, and not just taken care of in the kind of facilities that Richard was talking about, but taken care of in facilities of nurture and ability and health. Exactly. You know, I'd like to see people fight for the return of welfare as we knew it, but to be able to use our welfare money for daycare, if that's yeah. what we need to do. Yeah, Valerie, I really, I appreciate your call, and I will tell you that I am one of many people who are glad you're doing what you're doing. Kevin from Laurel, Maryland, you're on the air. Yes, I just want to say, me and my girlfriend, maybe 20-something years ago, we was dating, and she got pregnant, and while she was pregnant, she had major seizures, where we went to the hospital, and the doctor put on medication, and the medication would cause the baby to be deformed if she was to take the medicine. So we had to make a choice to yeah. abort the baby or have it deformed. But we also were concerned about her health as well. You know what I mean? She was having major seizures, major. And she's still having today, but they're minor. It was a very hard decision for her, I tell you. Oh my God, of course she's Catholic and this was her first time being pregnant. It was very hard. It yeah. was very hard. She was going through a seizure. She was pregnant. She had to get on this medication to save her life. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we had two decisions. Her live her life or take the medication and the baby be deformed. What did you choose? So we chose to abort the pregnancy. Yeah. And I still live with it today, you know what I mean, to this day. So I just want to tell people out there, as a man, I support a woman's right. And it's never an easy choice. It's never. It affects us as well. It affects us as well. Appreciate you. And Joan wrote a note in applauding and encouraging men while making sure that men make space yeah. for women, for trans people, for people who yeah. can. And we appreciate you doing yeah. that. Thank you. All right, man. Appreciate it, Kevin. Mm -hmm. Whew. We're almost done. We're going to get through it. And I want to say thank you to some particular people. We weren't planning on going as deep as, on this as we did. Trish, whose grandmother was pregnant in the Great Depression with her seventh child, her fifth and sixth child, were 10-month-old twins. She couldn't feed the ones she had. She had an illegal abortion because a legal abortion was not available to her, and she died leaving her children motherless.
Dot and Richard and Lorinda and Valerie, all who told stories of being unwanted children. Valerie making a case, I don't want any child aborted, but I also want to make sure that people have the choice and that we do what's necessary because they're not doing that in Alabama. They rank near the bottom of the country in child welfare. They are willing to kill people if they do something wrong. They are not pro-life in any sense. What they are is limiting women's choices. And so much love to Dot and Richard and Lorinda and Valerie who have lived lives feeling unwanted and so hopeful that this community can be at least one place where it is clear that you belong, where you are wanted, where you are appreciated. Kevin told the story of his girlfriend who was going through seizures, that, that medication that was necessary to control those seizures would have deformed the child, deformed the baby had that baby been brought to term. And so they decided to terminate that pregnancy. That fetus did not turn in to a child. This is not easy stuff. And I don't want to make anybody feel that their moral choices have been discredited here. In fact, the only thing I'm sure of is that I'm not sure. And because of that lack of certainty, because none of us should be so deeply sure, we should not be so blithe as to impose criminal penalties. We've got to make sure you all feel that you belong and you do belong. You are priceless. You are the coalition of the benevolently irrational, the good people doing good things, sometimes for no good reason. And you're priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. We love you, we appreciate you. Tom will be back soon. I was glad to have the chance to be with you today. Take care of each other. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman Cruise will be sailing in July of 2020. The seven-day Oceana Cruise will be going to Bermuda, and I'll be hosting onboard events about the topics of the day. More info at TomHartman.com or 800-856-1155.